This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Why do some scholars sacrifice truth and logic to political ideology and peer acceptance? With courage and intellectual integrity, queer scholar activist Corinne Blackmer stages a pointed critique of scholars whose anti-Israel bias pervades their activism as well as their academic work. In contrast to the posturing that characterizes her colleagues' work, Blackmer demonstrates true scholarship and makes an important contribution to the field of Israel studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome Corinne E. Blackmer to the show today to talk about her courageous new book, Queering Antisemitism, Academic Freedom, LGBTQ Intellectuals, and Israel-Palestine Campus Activism. Corinne Blackmer is Professor of English and Judaic Studies at Southern Connecticut State University. She's published widely on subjects ranging from women in opera to the Hebrew Bible to contemporary anti-Semitism and to modern American literature. Corinne Blackmer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I just need to make one correction. The title of the book is Queering Anti-Zionism. Oh, did I say anti-Semitism? Yeah, but that's no problem. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I I see the two is very closely related, but I really appreciate the correction. No problem. And Corinne, your topic, Queering Anti-Zionism, couldn't be more timely. You begin the book with your personal experiences as a victim of hate crimes on the campus when only part of your victimization was acknowledged by the authorities and by your peers. Talk about that experience and how it led to your awakening and to this book. Well, um, it was the genesis of this book, that plus a 2016 visit to Israel to the Schusterman Center SSIIS program. What happened was one morning I walked up to my office, and by the way, and up until that time I had been sort of a very quiet Zionist. I just had sort of assumed things, but was not very active. And I saw my door was completely disfaced with um, very hateful language and the door also um, injured. And I also received hate messages on my um, on my telephone. Sorry for the noise in the background. Um, and so 
I called the authorities and they came in and I told them what had happened to me, that the messages I had received and the defacings of my door were both anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist and homophobic in character. Uh, one said, die pervert Jew. Uh, so that made that fairly clear. What was interesting to me was that they focused only on the homophobic aspect of the hate crime. They did not focus on the anti-Semitism, and they certainly did not focus on the anti-Zionism. So that was the authorities at Southern. And that concerned me because I thought without an accurate profile, they're never going to be able to capture the person who did this. The same thing happened when I went to the media. Again, I described what had happened to me and the, tele and the television station, the local television station and the local newspaper, New Haven Register, focused solely on the homophobia. And I didn't have any way to clearly understand or explain what was going on. And this n now happened despite my protestations to the contrary. No, wait a minute. This was actually an anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist and homophobic hate crime. Um, and it was all three. And uh, I had done a little research after the hate crime occurred. And I found that that usually, not even just sometimes, but usually hate crimes are motivated by people who have multiple agendas. They don't target you just as a woman, but as a lesbian um, and as a Jew, perhaps. And if you don't get that whole profile in, you're not going to be able to capture the person who did the crime to you. So um, sorry to say, uh, they did do an investigation and they did not find who did the hate crime. And my family was also uh, targeted and threatened. That's really awful. And it should be, it should be surprising for somebody living in 2022. But really, if we think about it historically, we ought not to be surprised by anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism in the academy. Uh, if we just remember back to the 1930s and 40s, the University of Heidelberg in Germany was a bastion of Nazi support, and who but clever intellectuals could come up with a non sequitur of the concept of pinkwashing. Uh, what, what is pinkwashing, and how is it used? Pinkwashing. Pinkwashing is the allegation that, sorry for the noise in the background, I don't know how to shut it off, but I apologize. It should go away in a second. Pinkwashing is the allegation that Israel, which has a sterling record on LGBTQ rights um, that are much more extensive than even those that obtain in the United States or practically any other country, uses this record only as to whitewash its oppression of the Palestinians. So it's a guise, it's an excuse. And some critics, particularly Jasper Puar, have taken this further to say that explicitly, the Israeli government is only interested in gays and lesbians and their welfare to the extent that it can encourage them to become parents and therefore become part of the army of reproducers who reproduce enemies of the Palestinians. So you can't win, we can't lose for winning, you can't, there's no way out of this pinkwashing cycle, haha, -ha, um, 
that you can you you're you're damned if you do and damned if you don't uh and you can have sterling record of human rights and still be accused of uh, that those rights are really to just hide your crimes against the Palestinians. You know, if you would hear that reasoning in a therapist's office, there are a number of diagnoses that would immediately come to mind because the logic is ironclad. If, if someone is friendly, then they're just hiding their evil intentions if someone is unfriendly, well, that explains their evil intention. It's it's true paranoid thinking. And it's also, when you compare uh, Israel's attitude and record uh, with the United States, that's one thing. But let's look at the real context. Israel is a country in the Middle East. Uh, talk about the status of lesbian, gay, and transgender people in the Middle East. They are in real trouble, and I would say that they're in they're in legal peril. Uh, most of the states in the Middle East have laws that prescribe either long prison sentences or the death penalty if you're found to be gay or lesbian or bisexual, for that matter. And uh, it's it's a and then on top of the legal um, aspect of it. The real problem is families' attitudes toward their gay and lesbian offspring, which is extremely judgmental, very, very, you get disowned, you get disinherited, oftentimes you're shunned, sometimes you're the victim of family honor killings. So the situation for gays and lesbians in the Middle East is just dreadful, as even mainstream Islam uh, is a very, very homophobic formation. Um, so it's, it is a, a, a little tiny island of tolerance and respect and equality in a sea of oppression of gays and lesbians. And I want to mention that nowhere is this worse than the situation of gay and lesbian Palestinians. Um, their culture is extremely homophobic it's traditionalist um, Islamic culture, and um, gays and lesbians who are Palestinian often try to escape from the occupied territories into Israel. And there they are remanded back to Palestine or the occupied territories by the Israeli police who are concerned that they may be double agents. Oftentimes, they managed somehow to live an underground life and stay there. There was one case where a Palestinian man got a permit from the Israeli Supreme Court to live with his partner from Janine, in Janine. Uh, but mainly, um, they're kicked out of Israel. Then they go back to the occupied territories where they're, they face dreadful situations, uh, mutilation, burning, um, some form of torture, killing, uh, exclusion, and so forth, and accusations that they are um, it, collaborators with the Israelis. And then on top of it, the Israeli military forces sometimes uses gay people, gay Palestinians, 
to get information, it will blackmail them, and then the other side will blackmail them too. So I guess I want to say that ultimately, gay and lesbian Palestinians are on the crux, at the crux of the most oppressed sexuality that I personally know of in the world. Just to be clear, are there any Middle Eastern Muslim states that provide full equality and human rights to religious, ethnic, and sexual minorities? No, no. Let's let's turn to the academics for a minute, because that, that picture is pretty grim. How do you understand the apparent mental indigestion that academics suffer from when they somehow can't recognize the complexity of life that most ordinary adults take for granted? That is, that most things are not either or, they're not black and white, and that countries, just like people, do some things that are good and others that are not. How do you explain it? Well, I think that the academy is having some general problems with ideological rigidity, and that Israel and Palestine are a subset of that larger problem that is growing worse, even as we speak. But when we speak specifically of Israel, however, it really began with the 67 war where Israel had a very dramatic military victory. And suddenly the Jews were no longer the victims. The Palestinians became the victims. And within um, current leftist ideology, to be a victim or to be the loser or to be on the downside is automatically endows you with virtue and rightness. So the, the first aspect of this is the status of the victim. Um, if you can claim that, then you are golden. The second aspect of this has to do with the anti-Semitism of the left, uh, which has been around for a long time it was very bad during the Soviet period of the Soviet Union and the Durban Conference of the UN on racism, which focused almost exclusively on Israel and was extremely anti-Semitic. Um, and it has borrowed all the tropes of Soviet anti-Semitism. The Jews are world dominators. They're evil people. They can't be trusted. They're greedy and so forth and so on. And they're conspiratorial. And so it borrowed that whole cloth. And so you have, and the third strand of this is to some extent the work of a scholar who I address in the book called Angela Davis. Angela Davis is responsible, largely speaking, if not exclusively, for racializing the conflict between Israel and Palestine. So, and through her lens, the Palestinians are people of color whereas the Israelis are white, not only white, but white supremacists. For anyone who has actually gone to Israel and spent, I don't know, five hours there, you would see how crazy this idea is. So it depends on ignorance. The Israelis, you have Beda Israelis from Africa, you have Mizrahi Jews from Middle East. And at this point, over half the Israeli Jewish population is not Caucasian or white. Um, they are non-white people. And the Palestinians, for their, for their, uh, from their point of view, are not any different from the Mizrahi 
Jews. Uh, so it's it, you have to engage in sort of certain troubled racialist politics. Uh, so those are these major uh, determinants. But finally, I want to mention what I'll call what's going on these days is the bandwagon effect. Departments are rigidly leftist. And you have busy professors who are overwhelmed in their own lives. Somebody comes to their door who's a hothead, who's really, uh, and this is a minority of people in universities who are really committed to the issue of anti-Zionism. And they bring a petition, petition say, the Palestinians are being oppressed, you should really sign this. And they go, oh, okay, all right, I get it. And they don't. They don't understand the issues. They don't have time. They just go along because that's what everyone else is doing. We have this idea of the academy and professors as not, should not be doing this because they have academic freedom and are responsible for this free and impartial uh, inquiry into the truth. Unfortunately, that is not the case. It doesn't speak well about the character of uh, intellectuals and academics that they just go along with it. But it seems like, in many ways, it's more than going along with the crowd. Um, they have a lot at stake. Uh, you might have seen the television series uh, The Chair. It uh, talks about the dynamics and the intimidation. But when you uh, analyze the writings of the scholars that you review, I, you see what emerges, for this reader at least, is that the really ancient tropes about Jewish demonization just rise to the top, that they're prominent, especially Jasper Poor, the professor at uh, Rutgers University. So are you saying that those writers are ignorant and uninformed about the history of anti-Semitism, or are they intentionally using the tools of historical persecution? In the case of Jasper Puar, it is hard to imagine someone who is a more conscious, determined, and uh, rigid anti-Semite and anti-Zionist. Her anti-Zionism is beyond question. But she's also merged very, very highly into anti-Semitism as well. And what she has done very specifically in her work is a couple of things. She has revived big time the blood libel, the idea that Jews drink the blood of their Christian victims and Passover and other times, but just in general are bloody-minded people who, who use, Christian, use Christians or other innocent non-Jewish people in this blood libel that she explores. She is not unconscious and she's not simply doing a bandwagon effect. She is a leader in this cadre of people who are demonizing Israel. And um, I, as I explore in my book, it's not simply that her writings are biased. It's that they are, they are composed of a deliberate screed of falsehoods. Um, and um, you can see the, the state of academic publishing by noting that she passed peer review with prominent critics, including Judith Butler, and it was published by Duke University Press, which is supposedly 
a prominent and very respected and distinguished university press. Um, so she, for one, is far from unconscious and bandwagon. She is a leader. The same is true of Judith Butler. The same is true of Sarah Shulman, another person I investigate. The same is true, certainly, of Dean Spade and Angela Davis. All of them are in pursuit of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism as what they consider virtue. They want to see Israel disappear from the face of the planet. And then the world would be better off. Yes, according to them, the world would be better off without a Jewish state. Jewish state is um, the essence of evil, triple distilled. Remarkable. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, the BDS movement and the Durban strategy uh, before. Um, the the uh, delegitimization and isolation of Israel, um, uh, well, that's reflected in all of the academics that you feature. Uh, are they actively part of the BDS uh, movement? And could you tell us about how the narrative, the BDS narrative, keeps the Israel-Palestinian conflict alive? Right. Um, they are all part of the BDS movement and actively promote this. And the BDS movement is basically a boycott movement. And for these critics who are all in the humanities, specifically English or women's studies, um, they have become, it, it's become a way of, isolating Israel. Uh, and it is a curious movement in as much as it has had almost no impact, negative impact on Israel itself. Israel is a very well-connected international, an international hub of connections that are technological, cultural, and all other realms of society. Um, what the BDS movement is, in my opinion, is largely about American, and particularly American academic politics. And it is a way of isolating and demoralizing and demonizing people who support Israel within the academy. Uh, I'm saying that's just as practical effects. It may have a larger agenda. For example, Judith Butler uh, convinced a number of American academics not to um, have connections to Tel Aviv University because Tel Aviv University was somehow connected with the Israeli defense industry. Um, and she claimed that the BDS movement would not hurt individual scholars, but only people affiliated with, the, with their institutions. And that, of course, is a distinction without a difference. Uh, if you are a faculty member, I, for example, get travel funds uh, I, I'm a member of a university that has connections to Israel and other countries. It's impossible to make that distinction. So what she ends up doing is hurting individual faculty members. And um, so this is about the United States, and it's about the position of faculty, but also students at American universities who are targeted with this anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism rhetoric. And from what I hear, it's uh, frightening and uh, not very pleasant to be an undergraduate on some campuses. Yeah, I mean, That's down the true. street from me, 
at Yale. Um, it has uh, whole sectors. What's happened, what happened, Jasper Puar is in part responsible for this, is that whole areas of study that you would think had nothing to do with Israel are taken over. So as the academy gets taken over, it also gets taken over, the student government gets taken over, and Jews feel more and more marginalized and excluded from student clubs which say things like, if you're a Zionist, you can't join this club. Now, there have been a number of legal cases challenging this, but most people don't have the time. If you're an undergraduate, you're pretty busy and overwhelmed to go to the law courts and complain about this sort of thing. So that it has resulted in the marginalization of Jewish students on campus and the marginalization and the demonization of Israel, of Jewish faculty who are pro-Israel, and there are many who are not because they don't want to, largely speaking, because they don't want to um, get in trouble, uh, and other people who are just going along because it's inconvenient to raise your voice in opposition. I mean, for example, at my university, um, I'm in the kind of an open war with the women's studies department, which signed on to a statement in recent times uh, accusing Israel of genocide, apartheid, racism, which seems redundant as you're apartheid, uh, and colonial settler, uh, settler colonialism. And I said, I would love to come to the women's studies department, give a presentation and show how and why this is not the case. That request was denied, and I'm in the midst of an action against the Women's Studies Department that would um, prohibit departments or programs from exercising academic freedom and say that only individuals could. Because I used to be connected to the Women's Studies Program, but I had to drop my professional affiliation because they were trying to represent me or include me in a, in a program that was fundamentally opposed to what I believed in. And also what I stood for, which was rational inquiry into truth in the academy. And it, it's your understanding that uh, the reason these scholar, so-called scholars poor thinking and ahistorical inferior scholarship is rewarded by the academy is mostly a function of following the crowd, being sheep and not wanting to make an issue? I, in my observation, it is mainly that people are fearful and want to conform with the reigning ideology. Now, this is not only true of Israel and the occupied territories and the Palestinians, but it is also true about matters pertaining to education around math and race um, and other things uh, that the, are occupying the academy these days. Um, the suppression of freedom of speech, of, of free inquiry, it, which is getting seriously wrong. I mean, you know, at this certain point, the left and the right converge on the extremes in terms of their determination to shut down freedom, freedom of thought and expression. And in certain aspects of, the, of higher education, this is also taking place. Finally, Corinne, 
what kind of reactions have you heard and what kind of responses? How has your book been received? Well, it's coming out in November, but so far the, the, uh, the, it has been received extremely well. The people who don't like me and who are not talking to me are not going to do so anyhow. Um, I have been at university campuses where there have been protests against me. Um, I have had, and what is interesting, why, I'm, so why I am stressing uh, the whole issue of bandwagon effect is I've had a very, very large number of people quietly come up to me and say, you know, Corinne, I really agree with you, but I just can't take the risk of saying anything pro-Israel. Does that include people with tenure? Yes. They don't want to hmm. lose their friendship circles. They don't want to lose, you know, they don't want to be shunned. Shunning is a very, very extreme form of social opprobrium. Um, and you think, and I would say to them, but you have tenure in order to buck the trends in this pursuit of, that's what tenure is about, in the pursuit of truth. Uh, and they're like, I just can't. I don't want to, I don't want to jeopardize my standing in my department. Cowardice. I know I shouldn't be amazed, but I am and dismayed. The book is Queering Anti-Zionism, Academic Freedom, LGBTQ Intellectuals, and Israel-Palestine Campus Activism. Corinne, congratulations to you for the courage to declare yourself a proud Jewish Zionist, as well as an honest intellectual. I hope your book will be widely read by both the gay and straight communities and by the academic community at large. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.